This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for July 28, 2017. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Anne Gibbons talks with us about the biology of ancient manuscripts. What can DNA and proteins from their pages reveal about their history? Jen Golbeck is back with the monthly book segment. She discusses the book Smell Detectives with its author, Melanie Keechel. And David Grimm is here to give us this week's hits from our online news site. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. First up, we have a story on the sonification of data. Sounds very technical, but actually it's about turning giant sets of data into music. Here's an example. This is the sound of solar wind. Dave, why would someone do this? Well, Sarah, you're wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Because actually, we're not listening to solar wind as is. We're actually listening to data associated with solar wind. Okay, so somehow the points are, whatever these data points are, they're ascribing music to it? Exactly, right. So for example, if you had a stock chart, you know, that's kind of boring to look at, right? You know, it's just like a line that goes up and down. But what if you could turn that line into music? Then the data all of a sudden becomes a lot more visceral, a lot more maybe even pleasant to experience. And is that the goal of this, to make data pleasant? Well, maybe not so pleasant, but actually to make it sort of, to give it a different experience. Can you imagine high school students, you know, like you could either say like, here is the data on somebody's heart rate that's had a stroke versus somebody who hasn't had a stroke uh, versus, and just show them a bunch of graphs and charts. Or you could play something like this. And then all of a sudden, maybe they get a little bit more interested in it. Uh, Going back to uh, the solar wind for a second, that was not for research, right? That was actually for a movie? Yeah, that and this sound of data from a rotating neutron star. We're both from a movie called 
Rhythms of the Universe. And the guy behind this is a guy named, is a scientist named Mark Ballora, who's an expert on music technology at Penn State. And he has to make some decisions that are more artistic rather than uh, scientific. You know, he has to decide the kinds of sounds, right? Exactly, right. So, you know, for, as you notice, probably for those more cosmic sounds, he kind of chose more otherworldly sounds. Now back to the more, you know, research applications of this. There's at least one example of this helping a person who couldn't see listen to her data. Do you think that that's something that other scientists are going to take up? Well, yeah, actually, this scientist, um, actually, not only could she all of a sudden listen to her data, but actually she made discoveries with this music version of her data. So it wasn't just that she was able to appreciate her data in a new way. It was actually helpful for her actually making a discovery. And Ballora and others think this might be useful for scientists, even scientists that can see, to sort of have a different way of attacking their data. Next up, we have a story on the poverty trap. How do people escape the clutches of poverty? Why in so much of the world, if you start out poor, you end up staying that way the rest of your life? One group of researchers thinks they have the answer, disease. Can you take us through a typical scenario where you start out poor, then things get sick, then you end up poor again? Well, yeah. Imagine you're a farmer in a developing country and you're just barely getting by. Then all of a sudden, you get malaria your crops get a very bad pest that are starting to destroy your crops, and your cows, who you depend on for milk, uh, get a disease which causes them to get really sick or maybe even die and certainly not produce milk anymore. Then all of a sudden, what do you do? Because now you can't make the money that you need to make even to just get by. And researchers call this a poverty trap because it's sort of like trying to fill a leaking bucket with water. Like I can give somebody, you can give somebody a bunch of economic aid and try to help them out with money. But if they're dealing with all these other problems that are just draining all of their resources away, there's no way that they're going to be able to escape poverty. And how did they make this kind of make this case in numbers instead of more of like a scenario? Well, so the researchers, they, they collected data, economic data, disease data from 83 of the most and least developed countries. And they looked at things like, okay, what in what countries are certain diseases more prevalent than others? And in what countries is access to healthcare easier than others? And how does that all correlate with poverty and income and things like that? And that's what they found. They basically found that the model showed that, you know, in places where access to healthcare was limited and where there were a lot of diseases around that were hard to control for, diseases not just of people, but also animals and crops, people there had a really hard time escaping from poverty. Right. And one thing that kind of surprised me uh, when they were talking about the conclusions of this paper in the re- in the news article was that economic aid isn't just is just not going to help people in this scenario, which I was really surprised by. But then they said alone, economic aid alone. So what other things could people be doing to help? Well, right. So in these scenarios, you would really want to get people better access to health care. That's a big one. In fact, the scientists really think that's kind of the major one, because if people can sort of take care of themselves, take care of their families who are often also working the fields uh, and these farms, then they have the ability to deal with other issues that come their way. Is this something that people are already doing in the developing world? Yeah. So, for example, in Rwanda, uh, they've actually had a lot of success by investing in health infrastructure and health systems, and they've seen a reduction in extreme poverty and hunger. Now we have a story on decimating the p-value. A p-value of less than 0.05 
has long been the gold standard of statistical significance. Okay, not super exciting topic, I know, but we're going to get to it. There's a large group of scientists out there proposing a whole new cutoff, 0.005. And this is a very small number, much smaller than the one before, but the implications would be pretty big if this became the new standard. Dave, can you kind of just take us through basically what p-value is and how people use it wrongly all the time? Well, let's start off simply. So the p-value is a statistic you report it in a paper and you use it to show that the data that you have is statistically significant. So if I'm comparing drug X to drug Y and I find in my paper that drug X works better than drug Y for, say, brain tumors, I'm going to need to show in my paper that my results are statistically significant. Meaning they're not due to random chance that this is based on enough observations to make it likely to be the case. Okay, so that's p-value. And some people want to move it away from this point zero five value and two point zero zero five. Why? Well, it doesn't seem like a huge change, especially if you're not a statistician, but it actually can make a really big difference. And and this is an example the authors of this new paper actually set up. Let's pretend that the odds are one in ten that a given drug actually has some benefit for you. So if your experiment was statistically significant in the current sense of the word if it had a p-value of 0.05, that that would actually mean that your null hypothesis, which is basically no real effect, is actually about three times more likely than your hypothesis being tested, that is, does the drug work? In other words, there's really a very weak effect. Even if you say like, hey, you know, like I'm showing an effect, p-value is 0.05, it's actually pretty weak. But let's change that p-value from 0.05 to 0.005, and let's say you have to meet that standard. In that case, um, it would actually reduce your false positive rate from 33%, which is really high. That's basically a third of the time Mm -hmm. you're saying like something works when it actually doesn't to just 5%. So you're much more certain that your result is based on the things happening rather than random chance. Exactly. Okay. So it sounds like a great idea. Why isn't this something that we're already doing? I mean, don't we want to be able to say with surety that the study is probably true? Well, two big problems. First of all, if you want higher statistical significance, it actually means a much bigger, potentially much more complicated study. So if you're a drug company and you only need to get a p-value of 0.05, then maybe you need 100 volunteers for your clinical trial. But if all of a sudden you need a p-value of 0.005, you may need almost twice that number of people. So it's going to make your trials a lot more expensive. But the other big problem is people have already found ways to manipulate p-value, sort of picking and choosing data that's going to give them a better p-value. And there's no reason to expect that to change if you just change what a p-value is. You're still going to have that underlying uh, desire to sort of mold the data into what you want it to be. And so some critics say just changing the p-value doesn't change some of the fundamental problems we have with scientific publishing and reproducibility. Right. This is supposed to address reproducibility, but there are other things going into that that are making it difficult to reproduce studies. Exactly. So while this probably won't all happen because of what you're saying about the difficulties in scaling up some types of trials, this is going to probably spark some more debate. What else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about whether a region in your brain contributes to aging. 
Also a study about how one species of bird may actually be able to make sentences with its calls. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we got a story about what scientists can learn from a child who has controlled his HIV infection without drugs for more than eight years. Also a story about how the U.S. Senate is pushing back against President Trump's cuts to various science programs. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, sir. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. Ancient books are no longer the domain of historians and paleographers, those that study ancient handwriting. Now, biologists and chemists are getting in the game. Ann Gibbons is here to discuss her feature story on bringing biological techniques to bear on old books. Welcome, Anne. Hi, Sarah. Hi. So after reading your story, it almost seems like an old book could be considered its own organism. It's got skin, hair, proteins, DNA. Of course, they're not all from the same source. What materials make up these very, very old books? Yes, so they really are beasts, these books. They're made of many different animals and different parts, depending on where they were made and which monks who were scribes made them. So the book that was featured in my story and at the meeting I went to was made up of parchment, which was made of animal skins. And the animal skins came from calves, which were the first choice, sheep, which were the second choice, and then in a pinch, goat skin, which is really mottled and has parasite markings and is definitely not nearly as nice as the white parchment or vellum from calf. So those were just the animals used for the parchment paper. And then the leather binding, this this book preserved a remarkably old, one of the best leather bindings from the 12th century. And that was made, it turned out of two different kinds of deer skin. So just the materials themselves, not even counting the, the minerals that go into the ink or the dyes for the illustrations, came from a number of different sources and animals. Well, I want to go through some of these materials and, you know, the biological information that we can get from them, you know, one at a time here. Let's take DNA. What can the DNA from these pages or this cover or other parts of the book tell us? So it's early days for the DNA. They're just getting into it, but what they have found already is they can offer a glimpse of the people that handled the book, whether they were fingering it, kissing it, sneezing over it, coughing on it, <laughs> whatever they did to the book, they left traces of themselves there. And already what they've managed to get from the York Gospels, which is another medieval book that was used in many ceremonies by the Archbishop of York in their religious ceremonies, they have found two different kinds of bacteria that live in human skin and noses, Staphylococcus that can cause staph infections, and this other kind called Propion, I think it's Propion bacteria, which causes acne. Uh, so they've picked that up already. They're hoping to go to parts of the books that are smudged, where people have spent a lot of time touching them or kissing them, especially prayer books. And they're hoping they can get full genomes of people, and that could then tell you about an ancient priest who maybe kissed Christ's feet in an illustration over and over again that could tell you what hair color he had, what he looked like, what diseases he carried, where his people came from, which migration into Europe or the UK he was part of. So there are many possibilities. Once you get DNA, it can tell you a whole lot about the people that handled the book. 
Hmm. I think my favorite example of, you know, things you can learn from a book is bookworm trails. What clues do, you know, tiny holes left by worms, uh, what, what, cl- what clues do those give us? Yeah, so who knew that bookworms could actually tell you a lot about how a book was made? So Blair Hedges is this evolutionary biologist who realized that furniture beetles in Europe, that there were two types, some that stayed just in Southern Europe and some that just stayed in Northern Europe, and they never went into each other's territory. And they also left when they would burrow into the wood that was used in the binding of a book under the leather cover, they would leave different size holes. So the ones in the North, in the UK and Northern Europe, left smaller holes. The ones in the South left larger ones. So if you looked at that wood or the wood blocks that were used to print manuscript pages, you could tell from the imprint on the book or the bookworm holes, where it was manufactured. Now, why would you need to know that for a book if you already kind of have a sense that it was made maybe in Canterbury by scribes there? Often the monks were traveling across Europe and bringing books from different places. So we don't always know the provenience of a book where it was made. So it's really nice to have this tool. And then for Blair Hedges, too, he's excited about learning about the evolution of these beetles, which very little is known about. When we learn more about, say, the animal skins or the diseases that people had when they handled the book, what can that reveal about the historical settings where these books were produced or read? Okay, so this was a big part of this seminar that I was part of, and that was, what are the interesting questions to medievalists and historians that the scientists can address? One of them is this, parchment and bookmaking was a huge business in the medieval era, but there are not that many records actually about the business. It tells you just the materials that the monks would choose also tell you about what was going on with their herds of animals, whether it's sheep or calves or goat. If they suddenly have to use goat in a pinch, does that tell you that their calves or their uh, sheep were, there were too few of them because of disease? Or maybe they were saving the sheep because the price of wool had gone way up and they wanted to grow them up to adults. Whereas if you kill them for parchment, they're, they're, you have to use baby animals. So it starts to tell you a lot about animal husbandry and the economics of bookmaking and rearing sheep for wool and other, other things. But it also tells you a little bit about how humans affected the evolution of the animals too, because what herds they preferred, what breeds they preferred are also represented by these books. The parchment is a tremendous record. It's a, it's a zoological record of the animals that were prevalent at the time. And it, it also catalogs year by year the changes in the types of animals that were in these, that were being reared by monks on their grounds. And I, I guess we should mention that the way they're able to distinguish the animals one from another in the pages of the book isn't DNA, but it's actually protein-based? Yes. It's a, there's a wonderful protein method developed by Matthew Collins, who's doing this work, where you can take the proteins in bones or teeth or parchment, any animal skin, and different types of animals have different kinds of proteins, different kinds of collagen. It has a distinct signature, so they can tell what kind of animal was used, sometimes down to the breeds. What about damage to the books? I mean, is that a big concern in the field? And will that put a damper on some of these new tactics, you know, as the books get older or, you know, even more rare than the Gospel of Luke? Well, so here's the thing. Books are such privileged objects that they've been taken such good care of. They've been put in rooms with controlled temperatures and they were protected from floods and fires as much as possible. So they are a better record than there are. They're not great 
collections of animal skins, except in a few places, or, you know, so much of the culture that was around in medieval ages was made from animals and it disintegrated because it wasn't protected like books. So that's the excitement about books. There's so many of these wonderful rare manuscripts that contain so much information about the animals who made them and the people who touched them and the diseases they carried. So I think the concern today is how to make sure that they're not damaged by these techniques, which are not destructive. They're all designed very carefully because no librarian will let you snip a rare manuscript. Sure. You have to find a way not to be destructive. And then also the, the big concern is how to not sample the contaminating DNA from recent people. So that's the trick. How to get the really ancient DNA or the really ancient proteins is the big challenge. How to deal with contamination by more recent people handling the books. Okay, and thanks so much for talking to me. This is a really fascinating story. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Ann Gibbons writes about the biology of ancient books in this week's issue of Science. Hi, everyone. This is Jen Goldbeck, and welcome to the book segment for July. This month, we're talking about smell detectives, an olfactory history of 19th century urban America with Melanie Keechel. I'm joined here by Melanie, and I think I'd like us to start just by figuring out, like, what does a 19th century city smell like? Because... I imagine it's not that great. Every city smelled in its own way. In the book, I focused on New York City and Chicago a lot because they were very smelly places. And the smells there in both cities had a lot to do with what the prime industry was, but also with the fact that the population of those cities mushroomed. And so you had a lot of people crowded into limited space, and smells certainly come with that territory. There was lots of sewage. There were also lots of different practices that made things smellier than we would expect today. So garbage in the streets, hogs roaming through the streets to eat the garbage. And then in Chicago, because it was really... Uh, where most of the meatpacking in the 19th century U.S. happened, you had smells of slaughtering um, and fertilizer manufacturing that went everywhere. Cities smelled a lot like the countryside, but all of those odors were really boosted and intensified. And that's what made the smell of cities so alarming. Honestly, that sounds pretty overwhelming. Did people living in cities like just get used to that? I think that smell really is like the weather, right? It's always there and it's always um, a potential subject of conversation. But whenever the smells were particularly bad, um, that conversation ratchets up and everyone was talking about it or complaining about it. Before germ theory, people believed that bad air, um, which they would know often because of bad odors, was going to make them sick. So they didn't understand the science or germ theory the way that we do now, but they were still able to make these valid observations about the world and how to stay healthy. Absolutely. This is one of the things that I think is so fascinating with the 19th century, that the science is really different from what we think of as the science of disease causation today, and yet it often led them to do the right thing. Miasma theory led people to think that bad airs made them sick. And that made everyone attentive to where bad air might be coming from. When people moved west, they always evaluated where they were going to settle based upon this. They would avoid swamps. They would avoid marshy areas because they were worried about bad airs. We know now the danger there is mosquitoes that would spread disease. 
And the same thing happened in cities. So people who lived in cities understood where things would be bad for their health and tried to avoid those areas. And so they talked about bad odors. They often tried to trace uh, particularly strong stenches back to their origins. And then they spread that knowledge to people throughout the city by writing letters to the editor, by filing complaints with the city government that these places were bad for health because of the stenches that they were producing. So germ theory upends miasma theory in that they learn that it's invisible microbes, germs that make them sick, not bad airs, so not stenches. And yet at the same time, stenches are repackaged. They're no longer the danger that's going to make you sick, but they do indicate something may be wrong and the presence of microbes and bacteria that would in fact make someone sick. One of the places where you can really see um, the impact and the struggle with germ theory is not among physicians, but actually within homes where women are trying to take this new scientific knowledge and make it part of their regular arsenal of protecting their family's health by cleaning the house. And a great example of that is whitewash. When I was a little girl, I read the Little House on the Prairie series, and I was struck by the fact that when they moved to a dugout, Ma refused to go inside until it was whitewashed. And I thought that that was like a civilizing thing. She wanted it to be painted. But now I understand that the point of whitewash is that it was a disinfectant. So under miasma theory, one of the things that whitewash did, the lime that gives it the white color also neutralizes odors. After germ theory, whitewash still does that. It neutralizes odors, but people also understand that it arrests decomposition, and in that way, it's actually keeping microbes at bay. Okay, so average citizens were using these smells essentially to do citizen science in the old school way, right? Even if they didn't exactly have the science correct, they were able to identify and report a lot of public health issues. One of the things that I really want readers of this book to understand is that while scientific knowledge was being produced and disseminated by scientists, it's not only scientists who are putting that knowledge to work. Women were using it in their homes, and also everyday citizens were participating in science when they moved through city streets, they found things that smelled bad, and they complained, um, whether it was to their government or as boards of health were founded, staffed by chemists and physicians. Um, they sent those complaints directly to the scientists. It, that was both helpful and difficult for the first uh, members of boards of health because they had an active public that was helping them out, but they also had often an angry public who was upset that they couldn't get rid of the odors instantaneously. And yet, despite their disagreements, those two, the citizens who were reporting from their everyday experiences and the scientists who were trying to understand and improve the city environment, they made a lot of strides together. And I think that there's great opportunity for that to happen still today. The thing that's changed is we tend to talk about things like air pollution in very different terms um, between scientists and, you know, your everyday citizens. But I'm particularly taken by new initiatives, like one that's coming out of Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh, 
that try to harness individuals' experiences and reports about smell and their evaluations of air quality. There's a new app called Smell Pittsburgh that asks citizens to use their phones to report bad smells. <laughs> and they're using that data, cross-referencing it with wind patterns as well as with in measurements of pollutants in the air. In some ways, I see that as a return to the stench maps that were one of my favorite archival finds where boards of health tried to map where the smells were coming from and where those stenches were blowing. And on the other hand, I see it as a continuation of something that worked really well towards the end of the 19th century. And that was pairing up what we might call citizen scientists, everyday observers, with um, the people who were in power and maybe had some more knowledge, but also had the ability to respond to what citizens were telling them. Well, Melanie Kiegel, it's been great talking to you. Melanie's new book is Smell Detectives, an olfactory history of 19th century urban America. That's it for this month. We'd love it if you'd leave us any comments or thoughts you have on the Science Books blog, Books at All. Until next time, I'm Jen Golbeck. Have a great month of reading. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's AAAS.org slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.